want to just ask you a couple of questions. As you know, my role is now, I've sort of moved slightly. It is connected to my background and everything that I've done, but just about race equity. And I just wanted to ask you, have young people spoken to you about about this sort of work and how they feel and what are their hopes and fears? What do they want to see in um, these diverse communities, you know, you've, you've been speaking to such a range of children. Yeah. Are there any particular important things that they've shared with you? Yeah, so when I started in the role, um, we were coming out of lockdown, and uh, so it was must have been March 21, and, uh, March, and I felt really uh, that it was really important we went out and spoke to children right across the country. So I literally went out myself, so uh, I spoke to children yeah, I visited Grimsby, Scunthorpe, Bristol, Hansworth, Cumbria, Newcastle, you name it. We're everywhere, Manchester, Liverpool, everywhere, London. Actually talking to young people from a range of communities. And we put out a survey and we got the largest response of any survey of its kind in the world. Uh, after the US Census, we got over half a million respondents. And we were able to analyse that data from, uh, you know, by ethnic group, religion, gender, you name it, um, region. So we really could see both what the issues were for young people and what different groups of young people. For example, we've got 2,300 Gypsy Roma children, mm, yes. 94,000 kids with special needs, 6,000 kids in care. So it, we, we, it was a big, uh, we've got a big, big database that's really meaningful, a government are using it. Now, what were the issues that came up? Interestingly, the on the big ticket issues, so what's holding me back, what do I want for my future? It was very, very similar in response, whatever background young person was from. There were some nuances, but it was very much uh, mental health, well-being, you know, coming out of lockdown, that, that coming out of isolation, how am I gonna make friends? I feel really bad, I'm, I'm upset, you know, that, 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 and one in five young people raised that as an issue. Uh, life at school was the second, and then the third one was places to go, things to do. I mean, I went to Luton and they were, we want cricket competitions <laughs> in Denby. We were, you know, different all over the country, but it was very much, whether it was libraries, cricket, nobody wanted, um, nobody wanted like more shopping malls. It was all things to do and yes. safe places to be. And for their futures, you know, again, young people were very much fo focused on their job, their career and a range of things. Now, one of the big things that came up from all the children with a loud, loud voice was, around the environment and then around fairness. Mm. Now, in that fairness response, a huge amount of the response was actually about race equality. So it was, BLM had just happened and children were really thinking about this. So, and what was touching actually was that in that response, you had, you know, I am from this group or that group and I've experienced this and I think the world should be fairer, but you also had the voice of, you know, children from um, white backgrounds and backgrounds really engaging with their, the entire cohort saying, I want this country to be fairer mm -hmm. for everyone. I want this country, and, and it's not fair that black children or that, you know, children mm -hmm. groups are discriminated against. And I think that was a loud voice from half a million mm -hmm. children. And it was, we only put six or seven key themes in, and that was one of the key themes that came out. It was ubiquitous. So, so I think there's that. Now, in my work, I, we also dive in where there's more um, 
you know, where there are things going wrong and we think we need to protect children's rights. So one of the areas, and this is absolutely related to race equality, one of the areas I've been working hard on um, is I, I basically used my, I have um, S2 power, so I can call for data from any public body that's held mm-hmm. on children. And after the child queue incident, I was so deeply concerned and I committed to, to her that I would do something about it. Because often there's fuss on the day and then mm-hmm. everyone forgets it. Yeah. Now, if everyone remembers, that was a, a girl in Hackney who, on just on the suspicion of a smell of drugs, yeah. um, basically the school called the police and then allowed the police to take her without calling her parents, without an appropriate adult being there, and strip searched mm-hmm. her. And it was, it, it, it's, it's grim. And, and I mean, it's, so I called for data from the Met Police on strip searching of children. Had the rules been followed? Were there appropriate adults? How many? Because that data was not available. And what we got back was really concerning. So it, there had been over 650 strip searches. Most of those had, over 50% had led to no further action. Mm-hmm. This is not kids who've been arrested. No. You would just be standing on the street. Mm-hmm. And... In, I think, a third of the cases, there was no appropriate adult. So the rules weren't been followed properly. And, of course, what I'm going to tell you won't come as a surprise for you, but yeah. 90% of it was black boys. Yeah. Um, and it. so I have now, I was so concerned, I, I actually at the moment have a data request out to every single police authority to find the same information. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the other, the the... There were girls, and there were girls strip search, and black girls, it's far smaller number than the boys, but, you know, and we've just had so much testimony from from boys, black boys, about their experience about this. So I've met with Smart Rowley, who is the chief of police at the Met, the new Mm. Met chief of police, and asked him to show leadership in this area, to support me with the other police chiefs, Mm -hmm. and to get some change here. Because, you know, the, the... of course, if there's a desperately serious situation yeah. happening, and absolutely these things have to happen, but that's not what these 650 were, I think. So that's a very specific way yeah. we've engaged with, with race quality. But, you know, I'm constantly looking at things like children's outcomes um, in terms of... Um, in terms of schools, in terms of whatever, and analysing those um, in terms of race and ethnicity to see where there are gaps mm-hmm. and to suggest things that need to be done and to deeply understand what's happening here. And and, and this summer, um, the government asked me, Kemi Badenhock asked me to undertake a family review to look at, cause, because she was concerned following the CRED report um, that sometimes... We, we talk in a certain way about race, but actually we're not seeing the positives. And when we actually looked at, analyze, so I undertook this family family review, and when you actually analyse successful family life, family life that supports children, mm. what children like about family life, I mean, the first of all, adults and kids across this country, so we did nationally representative surveys and asked them, what does family mean to you? Listen, it's love, yeah. it's everything, it's support. Describe family. It's not, we're not living in, you know, two parent, two child, sort of insulated households, which is the way we gather data. You know, pe- people across across countries are telling me it's grandma, it's granddad, it's auntie, it's the people you care about and respect about so much up the road, you call them auntie. Mm. And the different communities, you know, have massive models for how family can pro- has a protective effect and can insulate you. So whilst I'm looking for the problems, I'm also looking 
massively for the positives that we can learn from. Um, you know, I think uh, when I think of, of your mum, Shami, I see that strong woman mm -hmm. who kept her family together at all costs and understands the value of family. There's mm -hmm. so much we can learn from that. And is is sort of, you know, was so, uh, you know, um, worked so hard and, you know, and had that network. And so, so I think we, we've done a lot of work looking at, uh, at mm -hmm. areas like that as well. It's quite funny you say that about my mum. My friends and colleagues will often laugh and say, Shami, you know everyone. I say it's because we come from a family where everybody networks and yeah. there's a very close knit. So, you know, you really um, share things with the family, you look after one another, and that's really interesting that you've pointed that out as a as a as a really important. And I think way some of the interesting questions are: Look, I mean, you were a little girl when I I first met mm -hmm. you, and look how quickly. The community that you came from, mm. and we can look at the look at the change. And now, you know, lots of people are living in very diverse setups, actually, and in very, mm. you know, and and we and so what does it mean? And we don't want to be sort of stereotyping. You know, what what when we were say at Luton Sixth Form College, yes. you know, people were very firmly in their communities, yes. and it was very it was uh, it was first gen. Yeah. It was very different, and now I think we've seen so much change that diversity and race, you know, is really complex. Yes. Um, and it's it's. I just think it's also a massive success story as well. Despite all the problems that we that we yeah. identify, well, I just see real thriving, and and I see young people now feeling far more connected to this place than yes. you know and and you know and having expectations so i think we're i think we're in an interesting position well as as a ex head teacher and ex trust leader who led lots of head teachers how did you help um, head teachers support you know what sort of advice did you give to them and would you give to our head teachers now that are running um, schools with huge diverse communities and even if they're not diverse well how what advice would you give them so i think in terms of i mean i go i one of the really great things about um this job is i get to go around the country and see lots of things so i can see people i can see heads visit heads doing amazing things i'm thinking of someone like herminda channer up in birmingham um, who has used very much used her own Sikh background to develop uh, an ethos that is really supportive of her children mm -hmm. in her secondary school so you know whether that's around charity giving empathy you know how we treat each other um, so, I, so I've see, I was in Avanti the Hindu primary mm -hmm. based on the very much with a Hindu background connected to the Bhakti Vedanta temple um, and some some of their schools are are like faith schools and some are not and mm -hmm. I was really interested to see how they've laid in in their ethos things about developing the person family inner life meditation in their faith schools in a very a way that you would recognize as hindu so thinking about krishna yeah. if we're med meditating yeah. today, whereas in their non-faith schools just taking the learning about how to support individuals and 
you know, help children have more of an inner life and, and an ethical position and not feel blown in the wind. So I've seen some great examples out there. I would say, and this is back to where we started, I would say the first thing you need to do is listen and understand because people often fall over themselves with ideologies around race, religion, ethnicity. And actually, I think it's it's having that sense of the fundamental value of everyone you're teaching as a human being and then really understanding the communities or the com- and the complexities from where they're coming from and making sure that school is theirs, uh, you know, and recognises and loves and celebrates everything about them. And the way to be able to do that is to listen and not impose your own view mm-hmm. of what of what young people should be thinking or do think. Because there's going to be a huge diversity of both belief, opinion, politics, yes. all of it. That's the joy of working with young people <laughs> and communities. Right, so um, my final question for you, Rachel, is um, you study theology at university, and I'd like to ask you what value, you know, what has been the value of this degree for you, and what advice would you give to your 15, 16 year olds choosing A levels who are interested in, in taking this subject? So, so, and I had to fight to study theology, theology and philosophy. So, um, I really started to. So, I had a great sixth form teacher. Um, I was actually quite a naughty girl at sixth form, and I didn't. I was often off having fun and didn't <laughs> like study much. But then I, I had this fantastic teacher, Paul Fitzpatrick, and um, he, we were actually learning the gospels and philosophy of religion. And I suddenly started to realise that how great the kind of rigour of um, study of that subject was and it was just it was such a you know I, I taught myself Greek and um, so I wanted to read the Gospels in Greek and it just opened this mental world for me that I just hadn't had I came from quite a working class background and and it was the subject that woke me up if you like um, intellectually so I wanted to go study philosophy and theology at university and this teacher no one in my family had done it and my dad wanted me to be a nurse so you've got to go be a nurse I've got three brothers and I was like I'll be a terrible nurse dad and he's like be like your auntie Chris be a nurse and uh, so I went to see this teacher and I said look and, and don't forget I've been quite like naughty and often not been in class and I said look I, I think I'd like to go to university but I don't really know how to do it and this was in my second year of A-levels I've done no UCAS not done anything but I'd really got interested in the subject and and he uh, he had always believed in me and he sort of looked at me and he said well he was Scottish he said well he said you should consider Oxford Durham or you know two others and I thought good lord you know <laughs> and uh, he I said to him well where did you go and he said well he said I went to Oxford for my geography degree he said but then I became and this was something I didn't know about him he said I became a Jesuit priest oh. He said, so, he said, I left, obviously, he said, but I went to study my theology and philosophy at Heathrow College in London University. So I just looked at him and thought, right, I was reading, so I was from a Catholic background myself, so I knew kind of what that meant. And I was reading in English literature, James Joyce's Portrait of an Artist. So I was reading about, about Jesuit studies and I thought, right, I'll go there. I'd never been to London, so I just emailed the principal and I said, I'd like to come and study, um, haven't done UCAS, but I'd like to come and study theology and philosophy. He said, well, come down and see me. Um, so I got on the train. Uh, I'd never been to London. I got off the train, um, I think at King's Cross, and or used to, I can't remember which, and I said to someone, where's the high street? 
And they said, uh, <laughs> no, this is London, dear. Anyway, I went for my interview <laughs> with Brenda Callahan and he's, he listened to me and he said, right, I'll give you a place. So that was it. That was how I got there. And I loved it. Mm. It was it was just a world. I mean, I used to get in that dusty library. Mm. I'd be talking to all the other students and engaging on philosophy and theology. Mm. I had a great ethics teacher. Um, I loved my biblical studies. I just really, really loved it. It was an intellectual environment. I was as poor as a church master. I had nowhere mm. to live. <laughs> so um, my, that, my teacher from the sixth form got me to stay with his sister for a week and then I went to the Catholic chaplaincy in Gower Street and said who have uh, rooms and I said look I've got nowhere to live so I said oh you can live in the attic and I had no money so I used to eat the priest's dinner um it was really a kind of and I loved it so for me that and, and I was having this sort of intellectual journey both with theology and philosophy but also you know I started to you know I'd go to classical concerts to the theatre you could pay a fiver and get a seat standing up and so it just London was all part of that for me as well so what I would say is and career wise you know I then was able so when I finished my degree one of my tutors said look it's 1989 and he said go be a lawyer or an accountant he said you know make money don't be wasting your time so and he sort of gave me this challenge he'd read um you know talking about Thomas More's uh, Man for All Seasons and said, you know, don't be the one who goes back. I'm going to tell you the opposite. Go, 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 go try. So I, would, I, I couldn't afford to be a lawyer. I had no money at all. So I went to a accountancy firm. I lasted like five days. I just, every <laughs> night I just thought, I want to be a teacher. Mm. So I went trained as teacher at King's and the second I walked in the classroom, it was joy. It was absolute joy. I love being an RE teacher and, you know, never look back. So my advice to young people is follow your heart, follow your dreams, not someone else's dream. You know, it's yours. And I've had the most amazing career, the most amazing opportunities and and a pretty good salary too, Mm -hmm. certainly, you know, and... You know, here I am in my mid-50s, still learning, still engaged with, you know, doing something I never thought I'd be doing. And and it comes from doing something that really authentically is what you want to do. So that's my advice to young people. And my advice to teachers advising young people as well. Help them find their dreams and their passion. And that's what will, you know, put them on the right path. And I think the one thing I would add on top of that is have absolutely high aspirations for every single one of them um every single every single child you're teaching whatever the background they can do it and we're going to overcome the barriers and get them to where they need to be I mean I think if you you were you know not from a family that had been to university you know you came to my classroom I could see straight away you were perfectly able to go to one of the best universities in the country mm-hmm. achieve your dreams and do it and that's that's the job you know it's it's how can we how can we see the potential and ensure that nothing gets in the way? Not prejudice, not, mm. you know, no, nothing should be holding our children back. They're so full of potential. I never intended to go to university, and I do remember very clearly when you sat me down and you said, right, where are you going? What are you going to do with yourself? And I said, oh, I'm just going to get a job. <laughs> and I remember having this conversation with you, and you sat me down and said, no, you, you should think about going to university. And sometimes, um, that, sometimes, yeah. especially where I think, where there are perhaps, I mean, we, 
we saw a lot of cultural barriers against girls going to university, girls particularly. Um, and we worked around them, didn't we? Rather mm. than just say it was wrong mm. or whatever, we worked around them. And sometimes that was convincing dads that they were gonna, their daughters were going to be safe. Mm. That was a big issue. But it was also, you could go to London University, come home at night. It was, yes. it was those practical sort of things where we, we you know, and, and sometimes it was convincing parents like just put the put the marriage on hold you know like yes. because a young woman's gonna have so much more agency at 21 and don't worry she'll be she'll still she's still she doesn't want to leave her background but yeah. we need support so I mean these are tricky yes. really tricky things to navigate but I think diving in building confidence in the community, building relationships and being able to have these conversations, but seeking to understand, I think. Wow. <laughs> That's a fantastic way to end our um, interview. Um, Rachel, all I can say is the teacher that I had, you know, all these years ago, I can still see you in that way. And yeah, I feel a bit emotional actually. <laughs> but it's been... Yeah, I think I can just see that, that of what I saw in you. I can see that now. And yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for answering all these questions, really honestly. Um, they're going to be of great value to so many of us. And thanks, Shami. And you know I'm going to say the same thing. That little girl who I saw at 16 and all that potential, it's just the joy of my life to see it realised in you. Mm -hmm. So look at you, you're amazing. So um, and, and all those others that we work with too. Mm -hmm. um, what well, that's our true pleasure, isn't it? Yes. As as educators when we can see it come through into people's lives. Absolutely. So and it's a source of great pride to me that you are able to do that for young people as well.